Hi, and welcome to the 4th U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the 4th Universalist Society. Hi, I'm Devin Bowers. I'm from the Hamden Institute, and I host the podcast A Different Lens. Yo, little kids, turn off your TVs and listen to me. We about to do our ABCs. Y'all ready? Hey, yo, A is for the AIDS, B is for the bullets, C is for the crime. D is for the dealers, he's for education, F is for freedom. We are very excited to be having a special dual episode podcast where Devin normally hosts his podcast and I normally host mine, and we are going to both be interviewing each other as part of a joint podcast. Devin, I'm really excited to get to do this with you. Definitely. Thank you for, you know, uh, for really organizing this and you know, working with me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a lot of fun. This is a little bit strange for me to get to be in the the opposite chair. Uh, I will let you go ahead and kick it off with uh, starting with your questions for me. All right, awesome. So first and foremost, you know, just give us a little background about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Yeah, so Ember Kelly, she, her pronouns. And so I am the Director of Religious Education, uh, which is um, a bit of a... It's a bit of a mouthful in terms of a title, especially when you accompany it with, with Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. It really gets to be quite a mouthful. But uh, what it means is I'm in charge of both like the children's Sunday school aspect of religious education, but also in charge of putting on a lot of events. And so over this last year of the pandemic, which has been actually my first year in the position, we've had to experiment a lot with different formats like YouTube, podcasts, Google Classrooms, different things like that, trying to find new ways to be interacting in this online only church world. Uh, and so, you know, I think part of my job is to bring voices that maybe haven't been heard in our congregation to make sure that they're getting heard uh, using the connections that I, that I have in my life to make sure that uh, people are getting the spotlight that need the spotlight. And so uh, it's been really great, a really great year. We've ran some wonderful classes like we're just about to end a course as we're recording this about colonialism. And so that has been a great six-week class online. We've had 30 people show up consistently uh, for a class talking about colonialism and how it's uh, informed us and how we can uh, do better in decolonizing. And so it's it's been a great opportunity to really uh, engage a lot of difficult subjects and have some great education. And so uh, I really love the work. Um, I'm on the path to being uh, hopefully in the near future, a minister of religious education, but that's still uh, a little bit down the line. Well, that is super cool, you know, uh, reaching out to people and getting on a platform, you know, that's really resonates with me because that's a lot of what I do. And um, it's actually really cool that I think, you know, you're having this online class. And what blows my mind as well is 30 people are showing up consistently because you know how it is so many times especially in left circles where we want to do stuff and then uh, it doesn't get done, you know, it falls by the wayside at times or even, you know, it's like, Hey, let's go. And those education type deal. And, you know, people are showing up inconsistently. So I think it's great that people, you know, in your church are so engaged and so ready to learn and so hungering for that, that they, um, you know, like I said, are consistently coming out, you know, and ready to rock. That's great. Yes, no, definitely. It's been really encouraging, especially to have this kind of as like the 
the grand finale of the year is the as we come towards like the summer and the time down uh, to have this really uh, this class that I started envisioning back in like January and we put all this work into like reading and research and prepping for and doing all this work and then to have you know 30 plus people show up every week online for six weeks yeah it, it just feels good it feels good agreed and so you said you were in the Unitarian Church is that correct yes it's the Unitarian Universalist Association okay. So what led you to this association and kind of what are their, what would you say are their core values? Yes. So, oh gosh, uh, one year in, I get to get to pitch this. Uh, so I have traveled through a lot of different branches of Christianity. I grew up very Baptist-y, kind of non-denominational, the, the evangelical, the evangelical, right? We uh, prayed for George Bush in high school as we launched the Iraq war. And so um, I, I grew up in that world. Then I spent a little time in like what is called reformed Christianity, which is like big on the idea that God predestines who's going to heaven and hell. And then I spent a little time in the Catholic church, a little time in the Lutheran church. Uh, and then for the long, for a good while, I landed in the United Church of Christ. Um, and I was actually that's where I started the process of really formally trying to uh, become a minister. And I still have a lot of love for the United Church of Christ. They're very uh, socially justice uh, active um, denomination. And so I joined uh, the United Church of Christ. And but then I headed abroad to live in Vietnam, China briefly, and then Vietnam again, uh, and kind of held off on thinking about church. I needed a little space to process a lot of the religious trauma of growing up trans, uh, trans women in, in evangelical Christianity. And so I had that space and could heal a little bit. And I said, you know what, I really do find a lot of meaning in this religious work. Uh, and so I started looking again for what opportunities were out there. And as I looked, I found a lot of Unitarian Universalist churches had these directors of religious education posts and that they were full-time, that they did offer um, living wages, that they paid well. And that, you know, I said, okay, well, let me look a little bit into them. And I talked to a few friends that were Unitarian Universalist. And uh, I read up a little bit on it. And I said, you know what, like, this is really something that I can get behind. And I'm, I'm really happy uh, with the choice of, of looking for work in the UUA. And it's been a really rewarding first year, uh, kind of having membership in a little bit of both. I'm, I'm hoping to pursue what is called uh, dual standing, where you are ordained in like two different denominations at the same time. But that's, that's a complicated question for another day. Um, <laughs> okay. But they're, uh, they, the UUA is big on seven principles and six sources. And so the six sources are things like, you know, that they pay attention to science. They do look for like at the holy texts of various religions to like learn and understand from them that we, um, listen to like the traditions of the world that we look at the beauty of nature around us that we follow science uh but then the seven principles are about things like you know that we recognize that we're part of a an interdependent web and we uh, acknowledge the worth of every human being and we want democracy and everybody to have a voice and so they're very beautiful principles and sources there is actually um discussion and hopefully um a a eighth principle which is being discussed, which is specifically about naming that we need to be working on anti-racism and anti-oppression work as something that proactively needs to be done. And so that's been 
uh, a really exciting discussion to get involved with in the in the denomination during this last year. You do a lot of jumping around, you know, within <clears throat> Christianity, finally found your home in the, you know, Unitarian Universalism. And you're really just now, you know, uh, growing and blossoming, developing. And it is a um, a church that has values that, you know, with any, you know, just more than any kind of religious person, you know, aligns with, um, with them. Yeah, but um, I did want to ask as well, um, how do you, you know, because I know, you, right, we're both leftists, but, I, you know, and we know some of our comrades are, or, you know, um, the, they're very anti-religion, you know, religion has to be getting rid of, and needs to, you know, go on to spend history, and so how do you kind of, um, what ways do you navigate that world and kind of those, um, those individuals and those organizations which are very, um, you know, hardline anti-religion, you know, uh, what kind of, um, like, how do you personally reconcile your religion with the idea among some leftists, among some leftists that religion is a negative, especially Christianity? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a very fair question and one I've really grappled with a lot. Um, you know, I, so interestingly, like the, to reflect a little bit on the, on the UU aspect of it is that, um, like the UU has atheists, it has agnostics, it has humanists, it has Christians, it has, um, Jews, it has Muslims, it has Buddhists. Like there's, there's UUs that come from lots of different traditions and walks of life. And so that's, um, really beautiful to kind of see that community exist in this religious space where people come with a lot of different, uh, notions. And so, I've, I feel like I've kind of had to embrace that own kind of attitude in, in my life a little bit. Um, it's been quite the journey because, I mean, uh, I really first got radicalized. Um, you know, I thought it was, uh, as somebody who grew up, you know, practically worshiping uh, George W., um, I thought it was pretty radical to be interested in Barack Obama at the time in 2008. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember, you know, having people who really loved Hillary Clinton be like, how can you support him? He doesn't stand a chance. And, I felt very uh, radical and cool. Um, but then I got really disenchanted um, once I saw the Democrat establishment basically um, squash anything from actually changing. And so I got involved with like Occupy. Um, that was something that really resonated deeply with me, as I think it did a lot of folks uh, in kind of my similar age range. Um, I'm 32, so for context. Um, and so um, Occupy was kind of a moment where I could uh, begin to explore those ideas a little bit deeper. And at the same time as Occupy, I was also kind of coming into my own as uh, coming out of the closet as a trans woman. And so it was, uh, you know, radicalism, trans identity. And then it's like, you know, how does religion fit in with this? Like, that's like two things knocking against being um, any sort of religious is, you know, you know the, those three really don't feel like they mix. Um, and so I, you know, I think that, you know, in a, in a lot of religious spaces, you'll have maybe a radical, uh, straight white cis guy, um, who can get away with maybe being a little bit radical, or maybe you have a trans person who's a pastor, but that uh, they're pretty generically, uh, liberal and doesn't really push a lot of buttons. So to have a very radically minded uh, trans woman in religious world sometimes feels a little bit like a challenge. And yeah, definitely navigating as I became more and more committed to really being focused on liberation politics and just thinking 
um, a bit more deeply about, you know, anti-capitalism and things like that. But I, um, you know, I, I really did struggle a lot with it. And, um, you know, I, gosh, I, I, I had some discussions with a coworker about philosophy, uh, when I was teaching in Vietnam and said something, you know, we, we had all these discussions and I said that oh, maybe I'm thinking about going back to, to doing church work. And he's like, you just told me that you're not quite sure about God. You're really going to go back to church work. And I said, you know, it's, it's precisely for that reason that I should uh, be doing it because I can show that it's okay to have a little bit of doubt and have these struggles. Um, but so, you know, I think for me, some of the things that are really key is that obviously there is the quote by Marx about religions located masses, but what, you know, he's getting at is the way that the, the masses have suffered that um, everyday people turn to religion because nothing else seems to be helping them. So they at least want like some hope. Um, and so uh, that doesn't, you know, obviously religion does get involved in these structures of oppression, but that doesn't mean that it's inherently evil or that people who are following religion are inherently bad or um, incorrect. And so one of the things that's also really inspired me has been like liberation theology and folks that um, have really tried to live out these liberation ideals in their theology, imagining um, God or the divine or this uh, figure as being on the side of the other, on the side of the masses, on the side of the oppressed. And so that's been something that I've really uh, engaged with a lot theologically. And you know, I think I think that there's there's beauty to be found in this in this uh, this strange middle ground between uh, radicalism and religion, but I. I I do think that it's possible to exist there. Hundred percent, because I personally, um, I don't really uh, see any difference between my politics and my religion. Because at least for me personally, right, like my morals influence my politics. You know, not the other way around. And um, what was I gonna say? Yeah, I, I just think that there doesn't need to be this massive um, divide. You know. No, I think we can get into the weeds and have conversations about different sects of Christianity and whatnot, 100%. But just generally, I don't think there needs to be um, this great big divide between politics and religion. Because, no, um, I, I give it to me try, to try to act like there can be or is, but like, you know, I'd, I'd go out on a limb and say the majority of the world's people, right, are religious in some nature. So. We actually, it's, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, up to left us to go and help to bridge that divide and, uh, you know, try to encourage, you know, more, at least in my opinion, more legitimate interpretations, such as Christianity, you know, of, 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 of the text, you know, because you just can go around and go around, uh, you know, and go around, you know, uh, B5000 with, uh, Wilson Brand was like, hold up. Little, little, little picture out there and go, hold up. Do you guys have credit cards? Do you, you know, are, are, I'm actually, I shouldn't do this. I'm really taking away your incentive to go in, feed yourself. I, I don't remember reading any of that in the Bible, you know? Right. So I think that, uh, we can, you know, like I was saying, you know, we can really bridge this divide and really, uh, get more people involved. Definitely. When I think, you know, one of the things as I thought about it, especially, having gone through seminary and having to really dive into theology and like write a lot is that one of the things that I 
came away with though is that I do think that I'm trying to figure out the best phrasings here that in a sense religion can be an area where we sh- where we can and should perhaps struggle for like revolutionary change. I think if this this last year has shown us how unequal and how problematic a lot of things uh, can be, and uh, you know p- the fact that I you know grew up in Christianity that always talked about. Ah, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Church is not being in the building, but yet all these evangelical churches were obsessed about why can't we meet in person? Uh, and so, uh, you know, we've we've become awakened to a lot of things in this in this moment of the pandemic because it's really thrown off a lot of the past equilibrium. And I think that it shows us that uh, that churches can be this place where we can struggle for for real change. Like I think about this movement around, you know, putting in. To the, to the UU principles, this eighth principle that says we're committed to doing this anti-racism work, that that means, you know, that's a, that's a way of making sure that we continue to be struggling against this, that it's not just, Hey, we're going to try and be nice, but that it's, we're going to work against doing it. So I think that, I think that, that if, if it's going to be valuable going forward though, that we really do need to have these revolutions of the way of doing things in, in, in religious spheres though. I think that there are people doing that work. Um, I'd probably count myself among them. Talk about because I've looked it up before. I haven't been to a Unitarian church once or twice before in my life. Um, had a great time, had a blast, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I did want to want to talk about how does Unitarianism, how does Unitarianism, or you know, be the Unitarianism, Universalism, right? How does that differ from other branches? Uh, yeah, no. So I can I can answer that as somebody who's a bit of a mystery. Um, so uh, obviously, like you know, way back when you had like just the Catholic Church, then you had the Protestants that that broke off from from them. But pretty much immediately, as soon as the the Protestants challenged the Pope's authority, then suddenly everybody's like, "Hey, well, what about this idea?" Um, and two that sprang up really early on were um, Unitarianism, which challenged the idea that. Uh, God was existing in a trinity and universalism, which challenged the idea that God would send anybody to hell. Uh, and so both of these moved over to, uh, the United States during colonialism. Uh, and so they, uh, got transplanted over here. Unitarianism in particular, uh, became, uh, a pretty well connected, uh, Northeastern U.S., um, sort of religion. Uh, and then in the 19, like, 50s, 60s, I think it was, they merged together to become the Unitarian Universalist Association. And so Fourth Universalist, the, where I work, actually comes historically from that universalist side. Uh, but they, um, since then, it's definitely embraced kind of this, it, it started out still being quite, quite Christian in a lot of its language, but it's really embraced trying to pursue this, this bigger vision of how we can be you know, multi-religious, multi-perspectives in, in one. But so it, it comes out of Christianity, especially, um, in terms of, in terms of the original two denominations. But I feel like they've really been trying to, um, build something new in the last, like, uh, f- the last 50 years that they've been working on, working on it. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it because it's, you know, you're saying the roots are Christian, but you, it, it's evolved into really in some ways a completely different project, you know, and, mm-hmm. One that is, I would say, is, is really neat. Uh, you, you know, like like I said, it's it's been beautiful to to get to be in a space where you know I can exist alongside 
atheists, humanists, Jewish folks, Christian folks, people with all sorts of different perspectives, and we can just exist together. Like it's it's really a beautiful thing for me. Yeah. Um. So I didn't want to come up with my last question, which was, um, what role do you think religion has and can play in political struggle? Definitely, that's a that's a great question. Um, though obviously, uh, in dealing with the tax exempt structure in the United States, but there, um, I can't say I know a lot about it. Um, but, you know, I do think that churches are a, a cultural, a place of cultural development. Like, what, whatever denomination, whatever background they're from, like, churches are a place where communities come and gather. Um, you know, and so it can be a space where we can, um, help shape and sharpen each other's political ideas and help challenge each other. Um, I think that, you know, first the work obviously is, you know, get, get right internally, make sure that like, um, uh, that you're challenging within the community first before you go trying to, um, say, Hey, our religion does this. Uh, you should do this too. Um, but I do think that religious folks, it, it's a great place to mobilize and organize from. Um, you know, churches not only exist as these places of cultural creation, but they also exist as just like this organizing network where you can get, a, you know, make connections all over the place with a variety of different folks. Um, like I think about our past work is like a, a sanctuary church where we sheltered uh, an immigrant mother and her son. And like that's, that is a radical political thing to do to, to risk, you know, the, the wrath of, of the government to shelter somebody who the Homeland Security or ICE, who ICE is pursuing. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that churches really can have a role in that struggle. And at, at the least, I think it's important that folks acknowledge that it's a place where we can be having these challenging discussions just because of the simple fact that so many people come there for connection and so many people come to a church for as part of the cultural development of our lives okay so now i'm out of the hot seat let's uh let's flip things back over so devin would you like to tell uh our listeners a little bit more about yourself uh sure i'm 29 years old um i you know uh yeah, that's it. I'm the Government Department Chair. Uh, I also run their yeah. podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, so tell tell us a little bit about the the Hampton Hampton Institute. Sure. So we're a working class think tank, and so what we do is we try to really give working class people a voice and look at things from a working class perspective. In the sense that um, we go and uh, try to you know kind of like what uh your church does as well, right? Is to give a platform and a voice to people who are not heard and try to do that, uh, reflect that as well in, uh, the podcast. Um, I think overall we do, uh, a, a fairly good job, you know, so. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so where did, like, uh, so the Hampton Institute, it's named after Fred Hampton, I believe? Yes. It is. Yeah. So, uh, where did the idea for like the, the Hampton Institute come from? Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, uh, like a, a people focused think tank instead of a, a think tank where it's all focused towards uh, policy for the rich. Yeah. So really that came from, um, Colin Jenkins, the, um, you know, founder of the Hampton Institute. Um, he's also the social, uh, movement chair of our, uh, and so, 
Um, yeah, it's totally moving track. I recall correctly, there's been some changes on the lineup uh, from time to time. But um, but yeah, so he was the one who started, and you know, so many people, myself. Um, so I actually was on Amazon uh, just because of, uh, of a friend of mine. So my friend Andrew Evan Marshall, he's a great researcher and writer. You know, keep up with his work. Um, so in back in 2013, um, he got invited to be the geopolitics chair. And then I was talking to him because they had mentioned it in a fundraiser. Uh, he was uh, a fundraiser. And I said, hey, man, you know, what does this have that stupid thing about? I'm curious. And he was like, hey, so it's some class think tank, think tank, this, that, and the other. Hey, let me put you, he actually put me in touch with Colin. And we were kind of deciding, um, you know, if I would be in a department or whatever, because we were just looking for people. And so I already volunteered for the LGBT department, but then that got covered. Uh, so I was like, hey, you know what? Uh, Colin said, uh, hey, we do have politics and government department chair. I said, actually, you know what? I think that'll kind of fit me better because I don't, um, like, I write about a, a, a variety of topics, and, you know, politics and government is super broad. So that actually does, um, help me. And so then, um, you know, in March 2015, something like that, um, we, we, we got started. So I wrote, um, a short piece initially. It was called The Other Side of the Matrix, if I recall correctly. And, yeah, i I just been writing, uh... But I'd already been writing for three years since then, but then that has really helped me to develop and grow even more as a writer and a researcher, you know? Yeah, definitely. I know uh, how important it is to to be able to have that that platform for the opportunity to write, it makes like being able to to get out there uh, doing it. And so you know, you you kind of pointed out how this this seems to be a kind of something that we have in common in, in both of our work here, and that in hosting a podcast, and as well as just in the work of the Hampton Institute in general, that you're really wanting to give a platform to like a variety of voices. Why do you, what, what really drives you in that work? Why do you think that's so important that we like be getting a variety of voices out there into the public? Uh, well, for me, it all kind of go in some ways, um, right? Yeah, I say I'm 29 years old, right? I'm a millennial. I'm an, a, 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 in some ways a child, right? Of the internet. I have been through a dial up and, um, DSL and files and all this jazz, right? And so the beauty of the internet is that, um, you know, no one is no longer, people are no longer constricted, right? So we can go and we can go and, you know, hear from voices, hear from people who would never hear from otherwise. So I'm like, why not go and talk to people, you know, um, about what they're up to, the articles they've written, the projects they're involved in, because one is on a personal level. It helps me to learn more, right? Because obviously, uh, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, kind of doing my best to learn and grow where I can and when I can. But as well, you know, let's go and take it to a wider audience. Maybe somebody draws inspiration, you know. Maybe somebody goes, hey, you know, um, a while back I talked to, this is some years ago, I talked to Manara Muhuesh, um about her outlet, midpressnews.com, and what it was like being a woman and being a Muslim in the alternative media space. And, um, you know, maybe someone listens to that and goes, Hey, you know what? Maybe I should go and do something. 
you know, maybe someone goes and takes inspiration from her and decides, hey, you know what? Let me see if I can write. Let me see if I can go and, you know, join the Mint Press News team or something like that. So it's all, um, in a lot of ways interconnected. And, you know, uh, talking to people who we don't really hear from is one interesting, right? Because we're already used to hearing from people. It's like, oh, you work for the Council on Foreign Relations? All right, I, I can literally turn to any channel, any channel, and hear from you. Oh, you, um, you're over at the Brookings Institution. You're over there. Great job. Once again, I can turn on to any channel, go on to any, um, you know, major website. Oh, look, they're signing the Brookings Institution. Wow. Super interesting, dude. Whereas, you know, now I can be like, we can go, we can say, hey, the stuff they're saying in that CFR report, the stuff they're saying in that Brookings Institute report, you know, it's coming from this perspective, from that perspective, or, hey, they're totally BSing. And so it allows us to, um, you know, hearing from people we don't usually hear from, allows us to get these in perspectives, um, call institutions and um, public figures out on their BS, and on some level to go and kind of have, um, I guess, uh, you know, to, to quote Howard Zinn, right, a people's history. You know, except now instead of being hidden away, it's in, uh, blogs and tweets and podcasts and zines and also all, you know, multimedia. Sorry, I went on there for a bit. <laughs> no, you're good. I was, I was, that's great. I was listening. Uh, and, but now you got me thinking that next year with, uh, like my teenagers and, and our youth group, I need to like be, be leading a, a zine workshop just to teach them the, the old school ways of, <laughs> of radical work. You got to make a zine. It's how you do it. <laughs> a podcaster of the new zines, I think. <laughs> yeah, mainly, yeah, because everybody, like in the 90s, right, early 2000s, every local organization, you know, if you were an alternative local organization, you were, you know, one of the cool kids, you had a zine. And yeah, now everybody, has a podcast, you know, whether they're talking about politics or sports or comedy or anything. And I akin, it's akin in some ways, not just New Zine, you know, in our spaces, but I'll say in the wider, um, in the wider populace, it's more of like kind of a hobby, you know? Hey, the pandemic or a lockdown, you know what? I, well, you know, I'll go and make a podcast. I'll do, you know, the path of time, do whatever, you know? Right. Oh, but you had a little bit of a, of a jump start because you've been doing this since before the, the pandemic, correct? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yes. Yeah, so you were, you were already a podcast expert by the time that everybody else was, was merely getting into the hobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why do you think, you know, you talked especially about like the Howard's and like the people's history. Why do you think it's important for us to have like these, these alternate people focused education and resources available? Why? Why is that so such important work? Because look at our education system. It's garbage. Oh, Christopher Columbus, Silvio Blue, in 1492. Awesome. Cool. That gives me nothing. You know, so much of our history is distorted. For example, the argument about um, having the bomb, having the nuke the Japanese. We had a nuke them. That was the only thing to surrender. That was total BS. They were already trying to surrender. 
They're like, nah, bro, we're done. We're beat. It's game over. We're like, you know what? We're going to nuke these people anyway mm. for no damn reason. And so it's extremely important to go and have YouTube because one, so, so many times we only hear history, right? But two, allows us to from different perspectives. And so because we're hearing from different perspectives, whether you agree or disagree, it doesn't really matter. It allows us to form a full picture of the situation. And then, you know, we can never reach 100% truth. But what we can do, right, is go and get as close, try and get as close to that as possible. And part of that is going and including different perspectives and different um, people with different ideas that, you know, you never heard of or disagree with. But it allows you to, like I said, get that fuller picture. Definitely. Do you think that that's really useful towards building like a, a broad mass movement for like justice and liberation? Yes. Yes, it is. Because in order, right, you're talking about building a broad mass movement for justice and liberation. We have to know where we're going, right? Where to know where we're going, you have to know where you came from. If you don't know where you came from, it's game over. And so if you're relying on the mainstream history about, you know, for example, we're at the crack cocaine epidemic. Oh, why did that happen? Well, you know, magically, crack just started appearing out of nowhere, start falling out the sky. Like, no, the CIA and this, you know, this being, this is the kindest, this is the kindest interpretation. We knew people were transporting it into the U.S. and we're looking the other way. That's still complicity, you know? And so, we are going to build this mass movement. And we need to have a serious and deep understanding of history so then we can go and uh, look at patterns, right? But like I said, see uh, see how things change over time, right? See where we came from and see where we're going. People always bring up COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO. Well, hey, there's a new COINTELPRO. I go, well, there may be, I, you know, people talk about that, but I'm like, one, did Quintelpro ever really go away? But two, they just now have a high tech version of it, you know? Mm, right. you know okay, I think people, you know, you. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, the joke about that everybody gives all their personal information to the their Alexa. Uh, no, just so exactly. Yeah. I talk about, you know, look at, um, you know, you know, Quintelpro infiltrating activist groups and whatnot. You mentioned W. Bush, right? Right. During his time as president, there were actively FBI, um, you know, agents infiltrating anti-war groups. Right. You know, there are they're still doing the stuff. They they're infiltrating anti-fascist groups. They're infiltrating, um, you know, radical environmental groups like this. Whole what I, I think it was in Ferguson, there was found to be some agent provocateurs a couple of years back in what 2014, 2015-ish Ferguson, right? Like. This, this whole thing never ended. Yeah. They just have justice in the times. Yes. And that's also a part of looking at history, right? Yeah. And you the tactics that were, and the strategies that were used against us and that we deployed and what these, those outcomes were, yeah. you know? And, okay, well, what can we do now? You know? Oh gosh. And, you know, mass movements are hard because I, I know I, uh, it was an observation I made probably on a, gosh, on a tweet, like, ages ago, but that, you know, for the right, for those that are very conservative, all they're focusing on is like the tradition that they want to conserve. Whereas those on the left, more progressive, more radical, 
they're they're imagining what the better world looks like, which is a lot harder to do than just um, than just grabbing the tradition and holding on to it, never changing. It's it's harder to imagine this new world, and it takes a lot of work to build these mass movements and to connect these people and to get the voices out there and get the history out there. It's all really so important. Yeah, it's easy to go and sit back on a status quo and be like, "Yep, things are fine. These are the way you know. These are the way things have always been." It's a lot harder to actually go and go, "No, we have problems." And hey, let's make some serious changes. Let's make some structural changes. You know, um, like the Revolutionary War. There were no structural changes. That was just, "Hey, you get the British out, so now the local elite can be ruling." Also, having a ruling class was a miles away. I've got one like, you know, a couple hundred miles away. Nothing fundamentally changed. But um, in order to go and to uh, build a new future, history is extremely important, especially, um, and not, not, you know, not, not just tactics and strategies and uh, who did what and whatnot, but just looking at institutions as well, you know. Um, and because so many leftists, many of them, you know, point to the UN and like international law says this on the other. And don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of international law, but the UN is a trash organization. Flat out. Mm-hmm. Like, I just finished up a series about a month or so ago where they looked at the UN its peace and um, the UN peacekeepers and the um, sexual abuse that they would mm-hmm. engage in. Right? They're from the 1990s onwards to the present day like there are clearly structural issues there are clearly structural problems and yeah stuff's still going on today you know um so i think that as well including when we look at history that's you know, bad you know not a good uh the, the kind of parts we like but also parts where bad stuff where the negatives occur and how like okay well what can we learn from this and, you know, how can we, um, maybe not fix what we have now, you know, maybe not, you know, let's reform the UN, but like, well, what if we went and made a different body entirely? So, you know, get rid of the UN completely, come a completely different body. And, well, how do we want that to look like? Like, where to look? What's the good with the UN, right? What's the bad with it? And how can we create a new entity that has all those good parts and minimizes and if it not entirely gets rid of those negatives. Definitely, we really got to look at uh, radical restructuring. Some yeah. real, real, real wisdom about how we learn from history there. Uh, Devin, thank you so much for this amazing joint podcast opportunity. This has been really cool to to get to go back and forth and to get to briefly be in the hot seat myself. Yeah, definitely. I, I, this was super enjoyable, and yeah, getting a hot seat was interesting because, like you, you know, I'm usually. Um, on the other side, I'm usually the one interviewing, not being interviewed. Uh, so we will have, of course, in both of our show notes, information about um, where to find us and all of that. So make sure to check below in the show notes uh, for links to like Fourth Universalist site, Hampton Institute site, uh, all of that would be found uh, below in the show notes. Uh, and so thank you, as always, to all of our listeners. We really appreciate you stopping in. And thanks, Devin. Yeah, thank you, Ember. And listen to me. We about to do our ABCs. Y'all ready? Hey, yo. A is for the AIDS. B is for the bullets. C is for the crime. D is for the dealers. 
P's for education, F is for freedom, G is for gangsters, everywhere I see them.